Welcome to Access Ideas, where we share insights and perspectives that spark curiosity, conversation, and inspiration. I'm Yana, and today I'm delighted to welcome Brian Schubring, Dr. Linda Schubring, and Nathan Freeberg from Leadership Vision. Leadership Vision is a leadership advisory consulting firm transforming how leaders express their brilliance and beauty for the benefit of humanity. Their expertise in leadership and team dynamics have made a significant impact on teams across the globe. Their approach builds on the Clifton Strengths Assessment, a 30-minute psychometric test that measures our unique individual talents, our natural patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving, and then it categorizes them into the 34 Clifton Strengths themes. As of 2023, more than 31 million people have completed this assessment. Our conversation today explores how leaders can deliberately build on or unintentionally erode trust and the vital role of understanding our strengths in achieving success. We delve into the delicate balance where strengths can turn into weaknesses if not managed wisely. And we discuss strategies to recognize this before it becomes a setback. We also discuss the importance of learning styles, how to collaborate effectively, building trust on teams, and balancing autonomy with enablement. Alongside Brian, Linda, and Nathan's insights, I also share experiences from my role as a communications manager, offering my own perspectives on these themes. On a personal note, this conversation led me to realize how one of my strengths was making life harder for me, and you'll hear that in more detail toward the end of the episode. And with that, I bring you Brian, Linda, and Nathan. Linda, Brian, and Nathan, it's fantastic to have you on Access Ideas today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to get started today. We have a lot to talk about. I think one of the reasons we initially thought this would be a great conversation is we all understand the importance of leadership and building trust and establishing strong communication. And we're all seeing a bit of a deterioration in in those qualities in some respects. And I think a lot of people are looking for insight and guidance on this. But before we get started, maybe we can define and explore some of these terms because they're pretty common, but they're not always agreed upon. So when I say the word leadership, what does that mean to you? All right, I'll take that. What leadership means to me is anyone who has influence. And so I believe that everyone is a leader because everyone has influence. And so part of what my passion is, is to help people understand what their influence is like, where their influence is most needed and among whom, like with the type of people that they influence the best. So that's how I would go after leadership. And it's distinguished from a leader. So a leader is someone that's maybe been put in charge, that has a position of authority, that's has some followers around them. And I think the leadership piece is the influence in action. As a matter of fact, we were, we were at an event yesterday where we heard a guest speaker and he actually spoke about this very specific topic. Now he's a retired executive for some major health firms. And what he said specifically was, 
that leadership is an ongoing process. We are always learning. There's not an arrival point to any one person getting to the point where they understand what that is. And he actually posed the question to the audience to, for us to all consider the implications of what it means to be a student of leadership, which I thought was a really interesting take on the whole idea of leadership. That leads me to another word that I think of as a bit of an ongoing process, which is communication. It's almost like a practice and leadership Hmm. isn't effective if it's a one and done appointment, right? You mentioned the the idea of leader and title, Mm -hmm. but leadership is a skill. It's a verb (laughs) Uh, in, in the sense it's an action word. So I like those definitions. I think that's very helpful because everybody's included and everybody can find an opportunity to be a leader. Let's go on to the word trust. Maybe this one is a little bit more loaded. Maybe there's some stronger... differences people hold in this uh, in their opinions of this word. When I say the word trust, when you talk about that, what does that mean to you when you're talking about that with the clients that you work with? That is a great great question to think about, you know, what does what does trust mean to us? We see trust as something that is engendered between a variety of people where there is a sense of belonging, a sense of I believe that you have my back. I believe that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. I uh, I feel trusted. When people say I feel trusted, that usually means I'm known, I feel valued, and my contribution is expected. And for most people that we work with, uh, they always begin with the trust that's happening in between two people. And so some of the words that people are actually looking for is they want to feel that there's a sense of safety and that safety could be anything. You hear people talk about emotional safety, psychological safety, professional safety, but people are putting together this word of trust with safety. And the second thing uh, that we always hear people talk about is trust in its relationship to relationships. And so they're putting that together. So when you think about how people are looking to environments where they can be trusted and they can trust other people, they're looking for that safety um, and they're looking for the relationship. But one thing that we do when we're working with our clients is we often ask them, what do you need when it comes to trust. So we take it from an outside external focus to an internal reflective uh, conversation, asking people, what do you need? What styles of trust do you most respond to? Are, Are you one to trust quickly or are you the kind of person that is waiting for someone to earn your trust? We begin with, a reflective uh, posture when we have our conversations on trust. And what's what gets really interesting is when we ask team members or groups of people, do you start from a place of trust or is trust earned? And, yes. and then usually that gets at the sense of, all right, maybe you, you start from a place of trust, but if you break it, like mm-hmm. you're dead to me. Um, <laughs> um, or it's earned mm-hmm. over, over a series of decisions, over opportunities to work together and find a little success or fail together well and keep moving forward. But there's often, you know, and we, we force people to, to fall in one camp or the mm-hmm. other uh, as, a, as a point of reference. I was listening to this episode recently on your podcast, and it made me think and ask myself, and the question made me come up with the answer, or 
the answer I came up with was I trust people to be human when I first meet mm. them. So that mm. means, you know, I don't expect them to levitate. I expect them to behave in ways that humans <laughs> behave. And then that trust grows exponentially as I see evidence of behavior that's consistent over time and there's reciprocity there. Mm. Um, but I think yeah. th that's, that's sort of the definition that I walk around with. I would say I trust people generously when I first hmm. meet them because I, I think going in with that attitude tends to bring you a, a closer to the people that invite it. And you're going to find out pretty quickly if somebody doesn't deserve trust with small incidents or small examples. But I thought that's such a great question because we use the word trust all the time. And when I had to define it for myself, it took me a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. Little time, so maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about how have you changed your ability to trust or your approach to trust. That's a, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> my mind just like spun into three to thirty different directions with that because <laughs> uh, as you were talking, it reminded us of the team sessions we do on trust. And one of the beginning statements is just asking people to define it. It's like, what does it mean to you? And we do that in conversations. So they're turning and talking to their neighbor, getting in groups of three, where they are then having a discussion. That discussion drives their definition deeper into them. So that's one of the first things is, everyone brings to the table their own definition, understanding and examples of what trust means. Secondarily, you also mentioned this issue or this aspect of time and trust. And we believe that, mm -hmm. that we are asking people to trust in time, like mm -hmm. in this moment. Um, but most people are not wired that way to trust in the moment. Some people trust more in their history with you. And so they may not demonstrate trust in your relationship until six or nine months from now. Uh, there are people that trust in who you're going to be. So they may be quick to trust you now because they trust more in what you're becoming. And, and so that is also different for each person is how they show up and at what time do they actually engage in their trusting of other people. And for me to answer your question, I have changed a lot. <laughs> I, I would say that I used to be very generous with my trust, very generous with my trust. Openness, curious, hmm. uh, that, that's how people would describe me. I would almost give too much information or try to help when we're onboarding someone, give them too many things that uh, I started to realize would come back and, and bite me. And so I think through a series of having my trust betrayed, having my degree of, of trust or generous trust uh, be challenged, um, sometimes even taken advantage of, like, oh, you're, you're, Linda's still going to like me. We're good. Hmm. We're set. Um, I started to realize that I'm, I'm looking back and there's many points of, of me being burned, me being taken advantage of. And, and I think I armored up a little bit and it was, and my boundaries shifted. And so I have to tell, I have to remind myself, yes, I assume that you're human and I want to be present to you and aware, but oftentimes in now in my late forties, I, I have, I have switched and there is this sense of me where, all right, it'll be earned. It'll be earned over time. It's just not, you know, uh, freely given because I 
don't want to be taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. So, may, so maybe I have baggage, but that's a different, that's a different podcast. So <laughs> would you say your attitude, is your attitude more like a, show me what you got and then I'll decide whether to trust you, would you say? Um, let's wait and see. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I will, I will embrace you fully. I will, I will be present. I will, I'll be generous in the space, but not necessarily with all the future steps that I would imagine kind of leaning in. So it's not, yeah. So it's more of a, let's, 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 let's build this over time so it can be strong and it can be something we're both proud of. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'm struggling with, and this is part of some of the conversations we have with those that we're coaching, and that is I I have learned about myself in, the, in response to it, have I changed? Early on in my career, I put a lot of trust in other people at the expense of trusting in myself, my abilities and my capacities. The older I've gotten, I have learned that it isn't so much a matter of trusting others as it is trusting myself. And the trusting of myself is now on the increase. And I'm finding that that is more of a struggle or you know, an authentic acceptance of who I really am, that I am trustworthy, that I have the talent and the experience to do the things that are ahead of me. And I have found that in my earlier career, I have often stepped aside in some areas of responsibility and, and trusted other people so that I wouldn't have to go. Or do you feel you've been burned as well? Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> I'm a trust first. I'm a trust yeah. first. I'm an encourage. Yeah. Um, I will believe in you. I'll give you the second chance, the third chance. I mean, that's just my natural inclination. Even thinking of some of the things that are happening in our company lately, I'm, I'm, I'm quick to trust and I'm also quick to fear. Like like fear of what well, if this goes wrong, and that's part of the lessons I've learned over life is that when you over trust, you can sink, and yeah. that to me is something that is a response a responsibility of leaders is to ask themselves if their over trusting of someone is like filling that person's boat full of water, and at some point they're going to go under because the other person maybe they don't know their own capacities or their own skill sets and we're entrusting them for some responsibility and not empowering them and not connecting with them relationally and not really understanding what their capacities are we're just trusting them to figure it out and then as a leader we go some other direction so sometimes we can tip people over quickly yeah nathan i want to hear from or if you don't mind yeah what do you you don't mind i want to turn it to nathan because he has great examples well, I'm, uh, so I, I was about to jump in and ask another question, and that is, <laughs> and yeah, sorry for <laughs> stealing the interview. But so, like, how you know, as leaders, you're trying to build trust in a team, right? Like, Yana, your boss, and the people you work with, like, they're trying to create a team where everyone trusts each other so they can be more productive. But then, Brian, what you're talking about as a leader also has to trust themselves, and they have to like build their own trust within themselves. And so, how do you, as a leader? As a person of influence, how do you do both of those things simultaneously where maybe you're struggling with, do I trust myself? Can I really do this job? Are these people looking up to me? But I also have to instill that uh, in them. And I mean, I think I know the the answer, uh, not that there's an answer, but I don't know. I'm going to push that back on the three of the three of you. Like, how, is, how do you do that all at the same time? <laughs> does that make sense? That does make sense. And it reminds me of another one of your episodes where you talk about the leader having the qualities they yeah. want to cultivate in others, yeah. right? So compassion was a great example. Mm-hmm. I think trust is a perfect example of that. 
So if you trust yourself, you can trust others with some of the similar mm-hmm. qualities. Not that mes- you might not have the same qualities, but the way you've learned to trust yourself can lead you to trust others with similar observation, right. reflection, um, giving people opportunities, ensuring that they're coming back and not overfilling their boat, like Brian mentioned. Mm-hmm. But Brian and Linda, weigh in here. I'd love to hear what you think. Well, part of what you're speaking to, and I'm not sure if we said it in the podcast or if I said it in my head or to some <laughs> or to a client um, or I was writing it there. I, I don't know, but, but th- what you're saying, Yana, about the reflective piece, um, we have found in our research that there is a direct correlation between a leader's capacity for fill in the blank and their capacity for that in other people. So this reciprocity is the more I have learned to trust my authentic self, the more I can trust other people and their authentic self and where they are. Um, And the same thing goes for self-compassion. The more reflective and self-compassionate someone is towards themselves, the more compassionate they can be towards other people. And what, in, in my experience, I have found that it is the, sometimes our inability to truly understand what trust means to us, then we overreach or underreach or over trust with other people because we don't understand ourselves what it actually needs. Does that make sense? I mean, my, yeah. <laughs> I think some of the leaders that, that we've worked with and sometimes people want to come to the table and like, I'm trying to engender trust. I was like, you're trying to get people to like you. <laughs> Um, so the, it's not about trust. Right? <laughs> so the people pleasing nature and have, you know, almost it feels sometimes manipulative or, or listening. Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll sometimes mirror back, you know, what we're hearing, like, you're right, I just want to be liked, I actually don't want them. And I want to trust, I want, through being liked, I want them to trust me. Or some of them just, you know, I want to demonstrate that mm-hmm. I am just tough. And I, I can show up and make hard decisions. I'm like, well, they're not going to trust you if you don't, you know, realize that they are human and they have needs. And so sometimes we say, how are you doing with warmth and competence? Because it's the mix Hmm. of warmth and competence that leads to a, a sense of how, which lever to push to engender more trust for a certain person or a certain scenario. Some people are really great at showing that they're competent. Some people are really great to be, you know, warm and I'm with you, except for sometimes that warm I'm with you could lean to people pleasing and the competence over rotating on that could just feel very authoritarian. So it's the mix. It's the mix of both. And sometimes that's a, a quick read on how you're doing and how do you improve in the realm of trust. Yeah, I want to comment off of that authoritarian experience because most people are remembering the experiences where their trust has been broken. Now, that may not mean that that individual has an overwhelming evidence of negative experiences with trust. The brain just remembers the negative more than the positive. And so for leaders to understand that, that when they're asking people to entrust themselves to their leadership, just for leaders to remember that most people are going to remember the reasons why they shouldn't trust someone hmm. against the reasons why they should, because the brain just hangs on to the negative more than the positive. And so then the burden of trust actually falls on on the leader or maybe to some of, of, of those that understand trust on the team. But 
to provide the overwhelming evidence that we can be trustworthy, to provide overwhelming evidence that the team is a safe place, to provide overwhelming evidence that there's belonging here, no matter what the conversation or the decision, to create a sense of comfort, a sense of friendship, and a sense of safety, so that trust can be part of the currency that's actually happening. And it's a positive trust, not that negative uh, prickly memory that people hmm. may have of past experiences. Yeah. And maybe this is a good time to segue to the idea of relationships and positive perceptions. So one of my favorite examples is the relationship researcher, John Gottman, who talks about the magic ratio of five to one. So every negative feeling or interaction between partners, because he studied partners, there has to be five positive feelings or interactions at least to kind of balance those out. And I can't help but believe this is probably present in the workplace and our friendships. If you're surrounded by people who are outweighing those positive with negatives, you're very quickly going to focus on that. Um, and it's very delicate because our perception of positive and negative can also be impacted by our preferences, by the level of trust we might have, how we perceive that person. Nathan, it looks like you might be wanting to chime in there. Did you want to say something? No, I was just thinking of, um, the, uh, I can't remember if Brian or, Brian or Linda said this in one of our trust podcasts but about how trust is built over all these small moments over time. And so, you know, that five to one ratio is you have to just constantly be proving yourself to be a trustworthy person or showing trust or, or whatever. And all these little small moments, everything from, you know, did you pick up milk at the store, like you said you were going to, to, you know, giant, giant things. And it's all those little things. And so that's really interesting thinking about um, Gottman's research there in, in light of trust and how you're like every moment, every interaction is an opportunity to either build that trust with someone or to demolish it. And to Brian's point, you know, people are going to remember those little moments where you, you didn't do that. And so how, how intentional that we have to be as, as leaders, as people of influence, as just human beings, you know, to your earlier point of you just trust people are going to show up as a human, like every interaction we have with someone is a moment, an opportunity to, to do something with trust, either on the positive or the negative. So well, along that same lines, um, in, in our work, we've done a lot of research and application around Heidi Grant Halverson's studies on providing overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Her book is no one understands you and what do you do about it? So we use that that research over and over and over again. So Yana, I like your statistic better because I think hers is the, <laughs> the six to one. So five to one's better. Um, <laughs> but what I like to remind people of <clears throat> is that as she did longitudinal studies in, in her work, she was finding that the overwhelming evidence to the contrary, before you can begin to, to change someone's limiting beliefs or their uh, cognitive bias. It's a six to nine month process of being consistent of providing that evidence to the contrary of what they're thinking before a person starts to bend in your direction. Now that's a lot of work, but the just the simple practice of like what Nathan's saying is, the lesson here for all of us is leaders are constantly weaving. They're either weaving or they're unraveling. And that constant weaving is building a stronger fabric of relationships between themselves and their people. So if we're weaving trust, that's like a daily weave. So we're going to create strong, meaningful human relationships through that daily positive experience. And 
as one of you two said, and <laughs> those transcendent moments of trust where you have that really great expression of it happens within a large group of people, people are going to remember that as well. And if we can provide that intentional juxtaposition as a leader, that daily consistent weaving together of trust that has these exclamation points of like these grand statements of trust that also does a great work with the brain because the, the brain remembers better when you have those swings of emotion, not all the time, but enough so to like, you know, zoom you back and say, oh, I can trust the organization and yes, I can trust you. Yes, I can trust the big decision and yes, I can, I can trust you. So, you know, when it comes to leading this, yes, it's a constantly, uh, a constant paying attention. And one of the things I want to encourage people to do is when people say, well, I don't know if I can start a habit. Like, I don't know if I can do everything, something once a day. It's like, well, how many times do you check social media? That becomes a habit. So it's like change that into, you know, how is it that we do these gentle weaving moments of trust that build a consistency. When, when we build a consistency, then humans begin to expect that. They expect to have demonstrations of trust and it actually gets easier. I love that. Maybe we can talk a little bit about building trust within teams or groups. So discussing some practical examples and strategies for fostering trust. One of the first things to consider is facilitating the whole person acceptance and growth. So accepting people for who they are. Uh, one of the other terms related to this that both of us have talked about is API. Yeah. Assume positive mm -hmm. intent. Assume that people are coming from a place where they want to help, where they want to bring their whole self to the problem, whether it's uh, a work problem or relationship problem. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And if you have any personal examples or client stories, I'd love to hear that too. Oh boy, where to start? <laughs> um, <laughs> the oh my gosh, the the acceptance of the whole person that is such a strong trigger isn't the word for me, but that's just if you can imagine someone as a map, like someone's life as a map. I think most people try to fold that map up as small as possible so they can see the smallest little bit of someone's life and understand that and then assume that that little square is who that person is. That's easy. <laughs> hmm. But the more you know someone, the more that it changes your perspective. But we're expecting that of people too. We want people to understand us wholly and to accept us as authentically as we are. So why don't we have that same openness and capacity uh, for someone else? And part of our work is in helping other people understand someone's whole story. I had a, a recent example of someone where we told part of, of their backstory and most people had no idea who that is. And without knowing that part of where this man came from and how he was raised, his relationship with his siblings, it, it sheds a whole different light on how it is that he shows up consistently. And so part of, of what we're trying to do is we're trying to demonstrate and share a person's story as reflectively and respectfully as possible so that others have more openness and acceptance to who that person authentically is. Mm -hmm. Brian, do you remember the quote uh, from Zach, I'm blanking his last name, about how when we view humans as whole beings, not just pieces of human capital? Zach who? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
You keep, um, keep going. Because that, I mean, it, 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 you shared that in one of this podcast and it was such a great example of what, like what you just said. Um, I just think that we see people like through a prism and we're, we're looking for short, easy stories of explanation. And all you have to do is shift that prism by one degree and you get a whole new landscape into that and who that, that person is. I think it's just this huge opportunity for discovery. We've worked with some organizations that their teams are really buttoned up. They each hmm. have mm -hmm. a personal brand. They can tell you what they're doing in a few words. They have everything set. They've told you your, you know, the, the, and then I almost lost it all. And then we, and then we got to this point. And oftentimes we have found that this, this um, acceptance of self and acceptance of the whole self really is break out of that brand elevator speech about yourself to really step into like a different way of, of learning about yourself. Look back in time and observe yourself when you were in high school and had that first job. What elements of that job can we pull can we pull forward and that you still act and interact with? Do you still are you still the person that people go to when they need things organized or they need someone to tell people what to do? And and sometimes sometimes rattling a well-crafted personal brand speech <laughs> really <laughs> begins to get at what Brian was talking about. And that is the, the spinning of the prism or let's look at it in a different way and let's see the nuances, not just name. This is who I am and what I bring. And this is why I got the job I did. Um, instead, all right, now what? Now, now through a variety of changes and adversity and opportunity, now who are you? And, and can, you, can you speak about that? Yes, and this is where I think listening as a superpower yeah. comes mm -hmm. in because we can draw so much more out of people and learn about them so much more when we show up and listen. And we're not just waiting for that elevator pitch to end <laughs> and go on to the next piece. Correct. It's because listening places you with that person. It places you alongside of them more than face-to-face. -face. And when you are sitting alongside of someone metaphorically, then you're not in the way. And so I, and part of what we're trying to do is sit alongside someone like in the passenger seat, if you will, and let them narrate their own journey and just ask uh, just simple questions. And the simplicity of the question is directly related to how closely you're listening. Because we are often surprised at how much people share with us. And I believe it's partly because we're in a listening posture and we're just asking someone to maybe share a little more or who else was there? What was their their name? And what time in history was that again? And this let them go. Uh, sometimes I believe that the best way to allow someone or to create a place where someone will share with you is to not have an agenda and to not have any questions that you're coming to prepared to ask. Because that puts you in a whole different posture to listen right away. And the best listening is sometimes when someone listens to themselves. So if we can really hold space, and maybe this is what you're talking about, Yana, like you're, you're holding space for people, you're really listening, you're showing up, you're listening with your whole self, allowing someone to speak. What we find is that when that person then is speaking, they're hearing themselves say things out loud into the universe that they're learning from themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we will, yeah, we will often ask, 
What did you hear yourself saying? Mm -hmm. What what stood out to you that you actually said out loud? And not that, it, you know, they just said it to me or they said it to Brian, but that they were willing to say it out loud because maybe they really believe it. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they, uh, they really needed to remind themselves that that story was powerful and... And they can take that learning forward and learn from their own lived experience. Listening is a huge contributor to trust. The ability for someone to trust you, I think really stems from your willingness to listen to them. And yes. by that listening, it's almost like you're, you're, you're saying it's okay to be close. You know, it's okay to share. And um, how many people do we know are really great listeners? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, you're, your day job is a communications manager, yes. Uh, which I imagine involves just as much, if not more, listening than communicating uh, to make sure that message is clear. <laughs> so, how have like how have you seen uh, like experienced some of these things in your in your leadership and in your role and, and what you do? Well, it was really interesting what you were mentioning, Linda, about telling our stories and listening to ourselves, because it reminded me of something that Nathan had said on one of your episodes about ideation and how every time you tell a story, you're making sense of it a little bit better. Hmm. And and this is what I do. And, you know, one of my strengths in the Clifton Strengths is, is ideation, so no surprise. Yes. Um, but <laughs> I notice that when I talk to different friends or family members and I tell them a story... I'm contextualizing, of course, because I'm thinking about who that person is, what will they care about, what will be poignant or funny to them. And then I come away from it and I think, oh, I'm not really upset about, you know, this incident and, and maybe <laughs> I started out being upset. Now I kind of see it in more of a humorous light or I might see it in... Um, with more insight. Hmm. So in my role, when I'm developing communications, so often what I'm listening for is not necessarily the directive, like write this communication about this topic. It's what are the values underlining that communication? Hmm. How is that leader establishing trust or building a connection with their team? Even if they are overseeing thousands of people that they'll never get to meet personally, what can we use in terms of language and tone and style that is going to facilitate a connection. Hmm. And that's where I think, you know, the stereotypes of, you know, so much of communication is body language, it's nonverbal, it's it's not written. But when we're limited to that, when we're limited to verbal or written communication, we have to think so carefully about what we're going to include and what we're going to give weight to. Um, so I absolutely uh, think about that every day and Going back to the listening as a superpower idea, it is fundamental for establishing trust because so often people just want to say their story and they don't get the chance. And especially when you get to people who are harried or just so overrun and they just, they literally don't have time to think, giving them space to speak it can make the difference between them understanding what they want and working through a problem versus giving me something that is sort of a half-baked idea and then hoping that I'm going to solve it. <laughs> so, yeah, so often in communications, it's like, I don't know what to do, but can you just make something up? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so the listening piece is, is sometimes more of active in facilitating that approach. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen that too with the clients that you work with? Yeah, every day. Yeah, um, that's, that is overwhelmingly true. Because I got spun up in how you're describing that and all the examples I have because... 
Yep, go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. You gave me the no, sign of you need to talk. That's okay. We have hand signals, by the way, that are yeah. off camera. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like, so like, I got a hand signal. It's curveball. Um, and so <laughs> that meant after you're finished saying something really insightful and important, it'll be my turn. The next podcast um, is on how to work with your spouse. <laughs> the four of you will talk because <laughs> Graham's on. Yeah. Sorry. Go um, on. So what I'm what I'm hearing is, you know, the the patience to listen to someone explain. And the the more they, they talk, the more they express themselves, the more you're picking up. And I I believe that what you're what you're demonstrating in your listening is the more capacity that you have to hear, the more you're going to learn. Because sometimes leaders are listening for one specific thing when they're listening to someone communicate and they're waiting for that one thing to be said so they can go on to the next thing and they aren't really hearing what the other person is saying. And like you're saying, Yana, if a person truly is working it out as they're speaking, you know, it is incumbent upon the listener to let them run with it until they figure it out and, and to not be, you know, judgmental or too much bias in the process. And I'm just wondering in your work, if if you notice when people start to spin, like we've, they've said it, yeah. now they're saying it yeah. a different way and they're saying it louder or more intense, or they might use the same example. With more arm motions. <laughs> with more. And and so for us, when, when we're hearing and really trying to listen to someone and we see some of the patterns, We'll, we'll just call a timeout and yeah. we'll just say, um, do you know that you said this five times? Did mm -hmm. you know that? And we just hold a mirror. Yep. Hold a mirror by way of either this is really important or you're just trying to work it out. Now, sometimes people will say, oh, I'm a verbal processor. So thank you for giving me just a chance to to get it out because maybe it's not a big deal at all. So hearing you repeat back to me what I what I said, realize, you know, makes me realize that I that it isn't that big a, a deal. Mm -hmm. And then there are times where like I don't even know that I said it a bunch of times. I thought I would I just said it once. But what Linda is talking about is just a lot of those individual skills that leaders can pick up to know how they listen best. Um, because for Linda and I, since this is such a big part of our, our business is having these conversations where we don't really do any of the talking. It's how do we listen and to really embrace what it is that we're looking for, listening for, that provides the best environment for a conversation to learn about somebody else. And I believe that every leader is different in what it is that they're listening for, how they're listening. And I think it's really well worth someone's time to pay attention to some of those instincts that they have in how they they listen. Yeah, and maybe you can pivot to that idea of intentionally building relationships with your instincts and and what you're picking up on. This is the second piece in building trust within teams and groups. Can you expand on that a little bit based on what you've said? People instinctively build and lead teams the way they want to build and lead teams, and that's individual focused compared to leaders that build teams based on the needs of the individuals on the team. That takes longer. <laughs> <laughs> Way longer, yeah. But to, you know, not to the fault of the leader, but, but like attracts like. So a leader is going to lead towards that which is known and they usually start that way. And then 
they bring us in when it breaks down. Um, because once they begin to lead, they begin to see really how different, distinct, and unique a group is. And that's when a leader typically finds out, I'm not sure what I'm doing now. Like I've, I've never led a team that is this diverse. I've never led a team that is this dissimilar than me. And the longer you lead, the more you're going to realize um, how different people's perspectives are, don't al align with you. Their work experiences don't align with the leader. Their cultural experiences don't align with the leader. And these will all then become roadblocks. And so how is it that we can really start by understanding what are dis what 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 are our unique attributes that we're looking for that we're trying to lead with and then ask ourselves what does this team need and more than likely it may they may need you to ask for help a tip and trick that we learned from one leader was to take a learning posture with your team ask each team member to teach you something give them the power give them the power give them the the teacher status, the leader status, to enlighten you. Now, as as a follower, sometimes it's like, well, I thought you would need to know what to do. Um, but leaders listen, but they also learn and they teach, and their the learning is definitely ongoing. And so, I really liked, I liked that adaptation and opportunities. So, Linda, yeah, is part of that having the chance to be on the receiving end and seeing what somebody's teaching style is like and then understanding, aha, this is how this person learns. Yeah. And then maybe that's how I need to work with them. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh. So secretly, it's really complex. <laughs> and so, oh. but allowing someone to demonstrate their teaching style, demonstrate their learning style, demonstrate um, how direct they are or how they wind around and tell you some emotional stories and grab your heartstrings and... Uh, make you cry or whatever it is. I, I think there there's this opportunity for uh, a leader to engender some trust to that I, I trust you and I trust that you have a voice. I trust that you are part of this team because you have value to bring to the table. And yeah, leaders can get some insight on, oh, this is what this person needs. Uh, the other person, they're not going to need that. They're not going to need me to walk around with them. They can just Touch points. It's also yeah. a point of vulnerability, yeah. right? Because oh, yeah. if you're if you're learning something and you genuinely don't know how to do it, and you're the leader and you're asking your team to teach you, you're putting yourself in the in their position essentially and saying, "Hey, I'm trusting you to teach me this." Yes, mm -hmm. yes, that's so mm -hmm. good. And there are so many different ways that we invite leaders to ask these types of prompts. And some of these prompts are, you know, to ask. So instead of saying, "Can you teach me?" Um, it's asking someone. Uh, tell me a story about your best experience on a team. Um, to kind of let them unpack that. Uh, share with me a, a time when, when you loved working with a, a, a leader. What was that leader like? Who was it? What? How old were you? When did you feel like you were a, a chief contributor to a team? You know, just like these kind of invitational prompts that allow people to tell a story when they were at their best, when they felt belonging on, on, on a team, they felt productive because in their story, in their response, you can learn a lot about what they're expecting uh, from a quote unquote good leader or a great team experience. And we ask that question a lot about the sharing of team experience where you felt like 
you were partnered well with someone, where, where you had a significant contribution to a positive outcome, where you were led well by someone. Share those stories with us. You see people's faces light up and they get all excited to share. And that's where the learning happens. It's like, oh, I had no idea that you wanted to partner with someone who didn't think like you. You know, like these are all learnings <laughs> that happen in, in our conversations. And we've had, we've had leaders say like, I just think that he doesn't know how to be led. You know, they're, they're complaining a little bit about uh, someone on their team. And when you, you know, when we're asking questions to the whole group of, well, oh, you were coached? Well, what did that look like? Mm -hmm. You were in professional sports? Okay. Well, then how, you know, how can we learn from that? And we realized there were components of how this person liked to be led that mm -hmm. just needed a surface in, yep. in conversation yep. and all the different tricks that this leader was trying. Yeah, they weren't working. Um, so meeting that person where they're at and yep. taking some tips from from a successful coach that really helped this gentleman along. Another experience we had was um, learning that 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 there was a team leader that was frustrated with the team member because they seemed bored. And so when we had a conversation with that bored team member, we realized <laughs> that they had graduated with honors, that education came really easy and that they were abundantly smart and they just weren't being challenged. And, and so the affect was, you know, I'm just not learning at a level. And when the leader found that out, the leader's response was, well, we can work with that, <laughs> you know, yeah. but no one knew that this person just had this natural inclination just to be smart and they wanted more to learn. And, and maybe someone would hesitate to admit that yep. because they don't want to sound arrogant. Ab absolutely. Like, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too good or something. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And maybe we can take a little bit of a tangent here because we're bordering on something I find fascinating that you've brought up in a previous episode of your podcast. A big piece of the work that you do is about building on your strengths. So you, you work with Clifton strengths, um, understanding those and then learning how to build on those. But something that was quite intriguing that came up was the idea of actually breaking strengths so that we can rebuild skills. I think it's such a cool idea. When I heard it at first, I thought, well, of course, we get confident in our strengths once we've learned how to build on them. And we're just gliding along very smoothly and we can, we can stop some of the reflection that we might have done. So let's talk a little bit about breaking strengths. And then what is the advantage of that? Because on the surface, it seems like, well, why would you want to do that? Like you're, you're sabotaging yourself. So let's talk a little bit about that. Well, and I want to distinguish between when our strengths get broken by circumstances, by becoming a parent, by going off to school, by <laughs> yes. moving to a new space, by COVID, you know, COVID surviving a pandemic. Um, so so there are, there are, there's breaking that happens to you. And the example I think in that is, and she'd love this, but I'm going to put her on the spot. Our daughter during COVID uh, asked when we were trying to shelter in She's place. She's 23, by the way. And she was, <laughs> you know, 20 at the time. And we were sheltering in place. And she's like, why are you mad? I was like, I'm not mad. We just, we need to protect lives and grandparents and whatever. And you can't have a sleepover at our house. Well, no. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And her, because she has an awareness and traffic's in the, the language of strengths, she just said like, well, which of my strengths are off? And I remember just feeling such compassion. So it wasn't a teachable moment. Like, well, what do you think? What, what strengths do you think are off? I was like, 
All of them. Like they're all off right now. The circumstances are just such that you can't really operate in the fullness of your strengths because your context is limiting you more than than what you're what you're used to. So there's there's ways that we break str- that strengths are broken that are have nothing to do with us. Great learning opportunity, uh, and she's thriving. So it's it's all good. Fast forward. the The other part is. Uh, when you're breaking them on purpose and you're trying to bust out of the mold a little bit about what people come to expect. Oh, Linda, I know you'll be adaptable and we'll be able to do this, this, and this. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm I'm driven by deadlines more. Or if I have an opportunity to reintroduce myself to you, I would say that some of the ways that my strengths pair together and show up have really shifted um, because of the different contexts I find myself in. And so every once in a while, like you're saying, it's taking stock and saying, okay, I'm not going to break it, but I'm going to spin it around and realize, oh yeah, this strength is actually sucking the life out of people. This strength <laughs> is not helpful anymore. It is There's a degenerative application that I've been using, but I'm but I'm trying to be successful. And I spin back to, okay, how do I give make this strength life-giving to me and life-giving to other people? And so starting with that goal in mind, I'm not just going to break it to break it, um, but starting with the goal in mind, I want to turn the application of my strengths to more life-giving, both for myself and for and for others. The metaphor emerged out of my ongoing frustration of people's belief that strengths are just always strengths. And... I just fundamentally didn't believe that that's true. Like, like that there was no, no point at which a, a strength could become fractured or break. And when I would watch people like just get to the point of, of overuse of certain areas of just who they are. And yes, you, there's a neurochemical response happening and you love the, the euphoria that you're getting from being in those moments of flow. But at some point, you may push it too far. And then people will use language like, well, that's my strength of whatever, or I'm just being and they'll name their, their, their strengths. And they're, then they're placing their responsibilities somewhere else and not on themselves. Hmm. And just knowing human behavior, you know, overuse of anything, it's gonna cause something to snap. And so just this idea of strengths can break has become a, a point of just drawing someone's attention to calibration overuse do i need to take a break do others need a break from you um and that's that's part of 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 the idea swing to the other side and i think that there are are moments where leaders can gently guide someone towards a breaking to relearn just like a bone you know like when the surgeon says this is gonna hurt but i gotta re-break this thing like they know and i think that there are and we were just talking to an executive just the other week about this very process of how this person might have to lead someone to the point where they're just at that moment and then that's where the teaching happens Hmm. and sometimes it is painful like a break isn't it oh yeah oh yeah i think one of my favorite expressions is from Debbie Ford, she wrote a book back in the 90s called The Dark Side of the Light Chasers. And there was a phrase that it's a great title. our weaknesses are our strengths turned up too loud. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's just a matter of recalibrating or turning down the volume. And when I remember 
I think I must have read that at just the right time to to take that in because I mean this is not new information, but I just loved that um, that expression to be able to understand that your strength can hurt you, your strengths can become brittle, they yes. can be mm, inappropriate for the situation. Mm. Um, they're not always perfectly adaptive and and it's up to us to have the insight and the reflection um, and even the relationships around us where we have people who can say hey i know you're really good at making decisions and like getting out and doing stuff but this situation calls for some reflection and and some you know sitting in place and and thinking about what we're going to do or conversely mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. somebody who's who's hesitating they no, this the situation is going to call you to to act. That's so important, but it's interesting to hear about these executive examples. And you know, we we all have to keep learning these lessons. Essentially, it's it's it never goes away. <laughs> yeah, I love I love the quote you shared. I loved the sentiments you just shared because it reminds me when when people say, "I want to unlock all of my thirty four strengths because I want to know what the bottom are." I'm like, okay, and and we will often say your I can tell you your five weaknesses right away. They are the same as your top five. They're just (laughs) sucking the life out of you because you traffic in them so well, right? You can lose track of time and start to realize I've hurt lots of people in this. And so how do we turn those top five, those weaknesses, as Debbie Ford was saying, and adjust the volume where it needs to be turned up in this scenario, but turned down in that one when you're building relationships or getting work done. And, and when people start to realize that, then they, it's like, you don't even know what 29 to 34 even, you you probably can't even understand it or get your mind around it. So don't spend your time there. Spend your time turning those ways that your your top five sucks the life out of you um, and turn it into an opportunity to, you know, invest in the good to really serve people and to serve yourself. I also think it did me just a piggyback on that, but that idea of uh, breaking to build back you know, stronger, like, you know, maybe a weightlifter or an athlete of any kind. I think too often in the strengths community, if we can say that, there's this idea of this is my strength. And that's like what you're saying, Brian, it's always great. And it's, you know, as high as it can be. But I think that we need this constant feedback loop, constantly be thinking about I have ideation as well. So, uh, you know, how's my ideation being helpful in this scenario? or not helpful, and then how should I maybe tweak it or be more aware of it for the next time? So maybe it broke a little bit here in this meeting, but now I'm aware of that, so the next time I'm gonna try to do it differently or do it this way. And, you know, I think there's a lot of like self-compassion that needs to happen in this in this process when things break and go down and say, okay, I'm, I'm learning, you know, baby steps and how do you continue to have that open feedback loop, not only with yourself, but then, you know, hopefully there's people around you who you can get some feedback and say, it kind of felt like my input in that meeting was off. What was, what was going on there? So um, back to sort of the beginning of this conversation of like, how do you trust in yourself enough to be okay fumbling around a little bit so that you can, you know, if things do break or, you know, like if you go on a really long run one day, your legs are a little bit sore. So you got to take a rest and come back and then do it again, get stronger for the next time. So it's all just a big process. I will own something here. I love um, what Linda was saying about your top five strengths also being your weaknesses. And as soon as she said that, I thought, oh, I know what I've been doing wrong lately, reading way too much news because one of my top strengths is learning. And 
partly what I do when the world seems especially chaotic is I just think, oh, I'm just going to get more sources of news and then I'll be able to contextualize it. And then I'll feel like I have enough. Like I can all make sense of it. Finally, it'll make sense. Right. But of course it doesn't. And it just gets worse. And the news is written to upset us and, you know, keep us awake. So this has been really bothering me lately. (laughs) So Linda just thought, oh, I know what I've been doing. Yeah. See, uh, that, there you go. Thank you. Good. So thank you, Linda, for that uh, great little solved. therapy there. Hmm. You, you are welcome. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's in these conversations, even just talking about it, that you start to to build the connections. Like, oh, that's what it is. But I'm curious and I like to learn. And it's fun for me to do that, but not when the information is you know, winding me up or... Mm-hmm. Or when it starts to feel compulsive yeah. and you can recognize that I'm not liking this part of myself, but I can't seem to stop. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Yeah, that's, we've all been there. And part of that um, learning was in your reflection, yeah. not in the repetition. And part of what we're working with people when it comes time, like when they feel like things are, are breaking, it's a, a breaking because of overuse or repetition, which then causes time for reflection to then restore that sense of equilibrium so you can then re-engage. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That captures it perfectly. Yeah. It took me a few weeks to figure out what I was doing because I couldn't connect the dots. Hmm. And I just thought, I feel compelled to keep reading all these news sources yeah. and I don't usually do this. Why can't I stop? But at the same time, I took actually a few people saying to me, you know, maybe step back from the news a bit. It's okay. <laughs> it doesn't make you a bad person. You're not any less informed. But let's go on to another important aspect of building trust within teams, and that's giving individual autonomy. Hmm. Now, there's always this give and take on teams with how do I myself show up for myself on the team? Um, and if I'm a leader and we all have a capacity to lead, if we've, as we've already uh, mentioned, how do I give the trust and individual autonomy to my colleagues or my direct reports. Let's let's talk about that. That's a tricky one <laughs> because many people ask for autonomy and they don't know what they're asking for. Autonomy without definition is quite dangerous, which can lead to, you know, people being get, just getting lost or losing focus. So then that was, that was exactly where I was going to, maybe it's because of some of the people that we've met with lately, but sometimes autonomy, and I would say without accountability or responsibility, mm-hmm. just is like they're doing whatever they want. So do we have some agreements about where we want to head? Do we have the goal so that you can be accountable to get here, but you can decide which steps you want to take or just check in with me at this specific specific milestone. And so we find that people thrive when a lot of people thrive when they can act, you know, and have not be micromanaged and, and just be trusted to get to the next, you know, mile marker. But if there's, if there's not accountability, there's usually frustration. And with that client that Linda is referring to, there was this language around autonomy and accountability responsibility and relationships. And we talked about those four mm-hmm. elements that there's there's somewhat of a math and, and, the, and the distinction of that math is determined by culture. But autonomy with accountability, 
relationships and responsibility. Like what's that unique equation there for people to truly have the autonomy that they're asking for? Many people are asking for autonomy in relationship and not autonomy in independence. And they they get that confused. That's good. Interesting. Yeah, I know. And they don't realize it. No, they don't. They have to learn it. Yep. Because once they have the independence, like if they're granted the independence, they quickly realize that they're alone and that's not what they wanted. They want autonomy in relationship and not autonomy in isolation. Is there a good question that you can ask to help people make that like distinction for themselves so they don't have to learn the hard way? Yeah. Do you feel lost? (laughs) (laughs) Well, just cut right to the chase. (laughs) Well, I have that tendency. but I've, I've asked a question like that a lot. And it, it sounds like this, do you feel alone? Or who's with you? Did you talk with anyone else around that? There's a lot of ways I ask the question, are you alone? Because when people feel that sense of isolation, sometimes they've asked for it, but they didn't mean by myself. You know, they, they meant in connection with, or I have access to. And so one of the ways that I ask those questions in coaching sessions is, who else is with you? Have you talked to anyone else about this? How long have you felt this way? When was the last time you checked in with whoever they were checking in with? When was the last time you were texting, you know, your good buddy at work? Um, so there's like all these other questions where I can really get a sense of their autonomy has led them to be alone and not in critical connection with the people that they care the most about. It makes me think of a a leader that wanted his team, wanted the freedom to just, you know, tell his team, this is where we're going, just however you were, however you get there. But then as he was kind of recounting who was doing what, it was like, but I wouldn't have done it that way. This, 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 but I wouldn't have done it that way. Or I would have done it that way. And sometimes it was win, sometimes it was lose. But I felt like, wow, a little judgment in there. And maybe he was just trying to, be open or just name it with, you know, some people that he felt safe with. But there was also, oh man, this is, I might just lose them all or he could win completely win them over. There's many people that just don't want to be told what to do. They've been micromanaged before. They've always felt like their thumb is on them and they, they're not free to, to be who they are, to think who they are, when they hear that, you know, there's certain deadlines or uh, we're driving to this completion, it's like, just trust them to get there, right? Yeah. And maybe we can pivot then to the next piece, because I think this segues nicely, the idea of creating challenge and difficulty. Because again, this is subjective, this is open to interpretation. Maybe that leader thought, I'm giving autonomy, therefore, people will rise to the challenge with their strengths and skills, but this leader might not have recognized that it would feel threatening on some level or that it would feel scary maybe like, oh, I'm, I'm not really in control like I thought I was. So maybe we can talk a little bit about this balance because creating challenge and difficulty is, is this really finely tuned dance, I feel like. It's very easy to get out of step and, and lose your balance um, if things are pushed too far. But to your earlier point, you don't want it to be so easy that the person is bored and feeling underdeveloped or underchallenged. So maybe let's let's go into a little detail there. Are there any examples or guidance you want to share? The first thing that comes to mind is that the teams that we've worked with that know how to navigate conflict well, 
So that could be in creating challenge and difficulty. Um, but the, the teams that know how to navigate conflict well, and they don't make it personal, and they, they, they are, they're in conflict maybe with ideas or perspectives, usually that, that leads to some sort of innovative breakthrough where the team now is, you know, the floodgates open and they can go even, even faster. Where, so, so even for some leaders to say, hey, we're going to think about how to create challenge and difficulty. Like, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. But we find how do you create conflict um, and orchestrate the conflict well, to use a Heifetz and Linsky phrase, how do you or- orchestrate the, the conflict in order to give people a sense of safety, but an opportunity to lean into something new and to realize like, I'm going to have to let go of some things here. I am going to have to broaden some of my thinking. So my first thought is it's usually what is that team's comfort level with conflict? And I turned around because one of the resources that that, that we use is Rebel Talent because uh, Francesco Gino um, coined a term called constructive conflict. And so it's this, it's this idea that the challenge, as, you, as you're referencing, um, is part of the developmental process, or, or the, the challenge is a strategy to create more cohesion among the team. The challenge is just beyond the fingertips of the people's capacity so that it's a moment of learning and relying on each other and overcoming diversity and limiting bias. So it's all these things, but it's well thought through. And, I, and, and we have found that there are leaders that have identified the challenge that they believe they're calling their team to, but the challenge was far beyond the reach of the team and they had them break that down into several steps. It may have taken them longer to get there. They didn't lose sight of what the goal was, but they got there in a different way than what they actually thought. There are other leaders that we work with that um, I'm gonna use this phrase, they're much more embedded within the team so that the challenges are just a stone's throw away from capacity. And if people can still see it, they can still lock in on it, they can still make progress. And those leaders are checking in with regularity. Those leaders are asking people if they need help. Those leaders are providing the necessary resources. Those leaders are actually listening to people when they're complaining and figuring out what's really going on here. So there's that constant dialogue. It's as if the leader is running with the pack instead of watching the pack run from the side. It's a different, Mm -hmm. it's just a different way of achieving challenge together. And it's just two different leadership styles. And do you feel one is more effective than the other? Yes. Yeah. So it's it's clear that running with the pack is is the way to go. What I find is, and we use this with another client of ours, their executive leadership team was struggling with something. And I just asked this question to them is what type of pacing do your people need right now? Do they need a pace setter that is out in front by several meters? Do they need a pace setter that is running in stride with some of your pre-identified leaders? Or are you pacing from behind, making sure that those that are falling back are being cared for, that are provided with the resources that they can catch up again? We tossed it onto them. Um, What is it that you believe your culture needs right now? And we just use that idea of pacing, different ways of leading. And I believe that the moment, and so the context and the culture determines how a leader leads to the challenge. Absolutely. I think the final one was recognizing excellence. So Mm -hmm. maybe let's 
think about or let's let's summarize some effective questions that you can use with your team or your colleagues to recognize excellence in a meaningful way. What are some tips there? If you're a leader or you're a colleague and you want to recognize excellence and reward excellence amongst your team, what do you ask them and what might you do to achieve that? Some things that we've done is encourage teams to give value shout out. Hmm. So I want to recognize this person who is demonstrating our team's value of X by this, this, and this, and this. And all of a sudden, their behavior is a lived out value. People feel recognized and it's saying it's a sending a message to everybody because oftentimes this is important, you know, via a Slack channel, channel or Teams or in a, a town hall or something. But it's it's sending a message to everyone else. Hey, this is the bar of excellence, and this is what this lived value means. So that's one of the one of the things that we do. And we have seen leaders do this well because some of the th- the leaders that I'm thinking of, it's an excellence and I think. From my experience, the best leaders never lose sight of what the excellence is, that 98, 99th percentile, that's excellent. And it's people that demonstrate their commitment to it. You know, people that were part of it, like what Linda's saying, they're demonstrating the value that gets us there. Leaders, I find, often make the mistake of excellence being only the achievement of the goal. And what I'm asking leaders to do is it's the excellence and, and it's the momentum and it's the person that was really encouraging. And it was the person that kept track of the score. And it was the person that came and helped someone because that is all part of the excellence expression that we often overlook is that it takes so much to get to excellence. And so when we're working with clients like Linda is referring to, we'll ask individuals to give shout outs to people that are actually living out the values or or living out whatever it is that they're pursuing so that the adoration comes from colleagues and not just the leader. And as we all know, yes, it means a lot when um, an expression of excellence comes from a leader and arguably some research would back this up, it means even more when that adoration towards excellence comes from a peer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's more of that running with the pack idea, right? Yep. Observing while you're in motion, observing while you're working on something together, you're seeing the challenge, but not just achieving the objective, you're seeing how they did it, how they lived the values, how they walked the talk. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, we've given people a lot to think about. So thank you so much to our listeners. Um, I want to point them in the direction of more resources. And I think your website has some fantastic links. Um, You've got a blog. You've got all kinds of of worksheets and uh, opportunities for people to learn more. Is there anything you want to highlight here today? I think if you just go to our website, leadershipvisionconsulting.com, there's a resource tab, as you mentioned, and there's... A plethora of things on there. We do have an online community that is something we've launched in the last year. And what we try to do on there is, you know, we have our podcast, we have our blog, but we also have this space where people can then come and kick ideas around around with like-valued leaders and sort of add their two cents. And similar to what the four of us just did here, say, here's an idea from this podcast. What did you think about it? And kind of offer their way. So it's an extended, uh, a place to kind of extend the learning and, and grow and wrestle with these ideas together. 
Thank you. That's fantastic. Maybe for the last question, is there anything I didn't ask you today that you wanted to talk about? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's like, how long do you have? <laughs> uh, no, because uh, I did not come to the conversation thinking, when can I say this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it was fun. Yeah, yes. of course yes. you are. It's it's just been so fun having you on the podcast. And, th- and these are my favorite types of conversations where it just flows and you feel like you could talk forever and there's little sparks going <laughs> off every other sentence and uh, just connecting the dots and being able to take away even, like I said, a personal insight today, which I wasn't expecting, but I, it's always a welcome gift. Um, so thank you so much for that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a very invigorating yes. uh, conversation. <laughs> I feel uh, inspired and thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. I, yeah. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. It was a great conversation. If you love Access Ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.